Lesson 17, 17, final lesson in our series on the book of Hosea. Uh, we got this, we, our screen disappeared on us, so it's a little, little fuzzy back here, but hopefully uh, some of these, uh, uh, these visuals will help to kind of bring this together for us as we wind up. Um, so I just want to make sure before we jump into chapter 14 that, that we have a good grasp of this book overall so that uh, we can remember its theme and main parts uh, in the future. So I just want to do a little bit of review, and then we'll get into the last chapter. Uh, we said very early on uh, that you need to think about this particular book in two parts. Uh, the book of Hosea is essentially divided into two main parts in that major division in the book, uh, falling between chapters uh, 3 and 4. And so that's this uh, top image here. Uh, we have the marriage of Hosea starting really in uh, this illustrative part uh, of the book in chapter 1, going through the end of chapter 3. And then we have in between this uh, sort of a divide in the book beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, really to, uh, to the end of the book. So in chapters 1 to 3, if you just think about these sort of in two, two parts, first three chapters, we, we have this real-life a drama involving Hosea and his marriage to Gomer and their children. And then beginning in chapter 4, we find this uh, sort of, you, you might call it an anthology or a, um, a, a sort of a published, if you will, collection of Hosea's preaching or prophecies that demonstrate mainly the long-suffering love of God for His covenant people Israel. Now again, this is, a, this is the first book of what's considered to be the Twelve, Right, so that all the minor prophets in the Hebrew Old Testament were grouped together as one, and Hosea stands at the front of that group, not necessarily because it falls chronologically at the beginning, but I think it falls, it's, it's put there thematically because there's a lot of judgment coming. There's a, in those minor prophets, there's a lot of, of warnings and prophecies concerning judgment against Israel, so it, I think it's important that this stands at the head of that group to simply say <clears throat> that no matter what is coming in the form of judgment, this does not cancel out the promises of God because these promises are based upon, God, based upon God's unconditional uh, love for us. So it's based upon His, his reputation, it's based upon His character. And so I think it's just a, re- a reminder that in spite of all that all that negative stuff that is to come in the Minor Prophets, we have this, this at the very beginning, a reminder about God's un, unfailing love. So chapters 1 to 3 are illustrative uh, and are based indirectly upon the love of the prophet Hosea himself for his wife, uh, a love that is unreciprocated. Um, and so this is, this is about a, a sort of a personal tragedy in Hosea's, Hosea's own life. And then chapters 4 to 14, dealing with the national transgression of primarily Israel and her spiritual adultery. So this is in these uh, chapters 4 to the end of the book. This is where where God promises to deal with the sin of the nation, but also to bring about a restoration, uh, a a reconciliation, a restoration based directly upon Israel. God's love, which is also unreturned and one-sided. And so it's, it's not, there's not, we don't see this reciprocation on Israel's part in this book of them loving the Lord back. Well, we will see that in the future. There will be a fulfillment of these things that Hosea prophesies, but at this particular time we don't see that response on the part of Israel. And we also don't see that particular response demonstrated uh, much in the, in the life of Gomer in the way that she responds to Hosea's efforts to, to love her. So Hosea was given uh, an instruction. He was really given an instruction that's a little different from the other prophets. He was instructed to, to marry a prostitute named Gomer and to have children. The, script, the text says children of prostitution. So Hosea would illustratively represent God in his faithfulness. Gomer would represent the wicked people down through the corridors of salvation histories regarding the nation of Israel. And in that first section of the book, we have the initial commissioning of Hosea to marry Gomer in the first two chapters. And then there is a second commissioning of Hosea to remarry Gomer in chapter 3. But in that first commissioning... The thing that we're immediately introduced to in the book uh, are these three children 
that are born of this marriage that prophetically illustrate the coming judgments, but also the blessings that God would weave into all of that. So these children were given names. If you remember, for for those of you who've been with us from the beginning of the study, these children there, you'll notice in chapter 1, were given names that were buzzwords, if you will, that were meant to kind of capture the attention of the people. And as you go through the book, you see why that is. So Hosea was to name the first. This is in chapter 1, if you want to go over there. I had you go to the end, but go ahead and flip over to chapter 1. We'll just review a few of these things kind of make our way through real, real quickly. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Hosea was to name the first child uh, a, a son, uh, Jezreel, uh, which is a root. The root of that word means to scatter or to disperse. So that would prophesy the captivity of Israel by Assyria and later uh, the later captivity of Judah by the Babylonians. So there's, there's this element of, of scattering in that Hebrew root, But then it also talks about not just the scattering of Israel, which is embodied in that naming of the child in Hosea 1.4, but after a true repentance, there would ultimately be a time when God would sow them, which the word, the same Hebrew word, that same Hebrew root can be translated as sow. And so there's this idea of the Lord's going to scatter them, but there's going to be a future time in which God's going to sow them back into the land. We see this in chapter 2, uh, verse 21, says, It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. And so this... Hosea's audience is picking up on these things. They hear the naming, that there's this naming of the child, but they understand that this has really a twofold meaning. It's used in the sense of both scattering and then also in the sense of being uh, sowed into the land, sort of replanted into the land. Uh, In verse 6 of chapter 1, we have the second child was a girl uh, named Lo-Ruhamah, which is a Hebrew word. It has a, the objective negation, so it literally means no mercy. So this is, this is to illustrate the fact that there would be no, no, mer- no more pity, no more compassion. Uh, that is what this daughter would represent, that God, in a sense, would withhold one of his chief attributes of grace. But then looking down, sort of, again, that the corridors of time, way past the book of Hosea, there would be a final judgment in captivity, and then the Lord would bring them back and bless them. And you'll notice this in chapter 2, verse 23 again. The second line says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. So once again, these, word, these sort of buzzwords are coming back and really indicate the whole history of Israel during this time period and really way beyond it, even beyond the captivities to the final gathering of God and the sealing of His promises historically. And then we have a third child of harlotry, a son, this is in chapter 1, verse 9, was to be named Lo-Ami, which means no people. So that seems to negate what the Lord had established at the outset when He called that people to Himself and pulled them out of Egypt where he said that you are going to be my people. In this case, it's to say, no people. These are not my people. And so again, you're like, whoa, you know, this is like the total reversal of what God has done. So this this boy comes and and the Lord says to Hosea when he comes, name him Lo-Ami because you, the people of Israel, are not my people, which should have really knocked them down. I mean, really should have humbled them should have brought them to a place of repentance to even hear such a thing, but not, not quite yet. Again, a lot of these, these uh, the fulfillment of these things will not, uh, have not happened. And so he says, basically, I'm not your God. Um, and then he, in addition to that, says, you are not my people. So it's really both, both sides, of, sides of this, which sounds similar to a, a sort of a final divorce announcement that is irrevocable, and the history of Israel's sin, 
and infidelity certainly provides uh, undisputable grounds for that. But again, you'll notice the remainder of verse 23 in, verse, in chapter 2. I will sow her for myself in the land. I, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say in, in mass, you are my God, which is still even from our vantage point a, a future event. So we have these, if you just think about the first three chapters, we have these sort of represent, representing characters. Hosea standing for God. Gomer standing for the prostituting nation and her children born of that prostitution relationship that seemed to be living up to their names. And yet, God will sow them back into the land. He is going to have compassion on them and they will again be His people. Then as we looked at chapter 1 verse 10 through chapter 2 verse 1, there was that subsequent though future restoration. And so we have this bouncing back and forth in those first three chapters of, we called it the bad news, good news, sort of ball back and forth. You have a section of bad news, and then we have a section of good news, speaking of restoration. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 13, there's additional details of coming judgments. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 14, we have another one of those reversals and a reassurance of future restoration based upon the fact that God will not renege on His promises. And then that section culminates in verse 23. Then next in chapter 3, we have the second commissioning of Hosea, which begins with this tragic picture of Gomer, who's been, sort of you can, you can imagine this sort of in your mind, she's been abused, she's been deserted by her prostituting lovers, and Hosea goes back and sits, he sets down the law and buys her back off of the auction block like a slave. And then you have these uh, sort of transitional prophecies. Again, Gomer, who represents the nation, will face a just judgment. But in verse 5 of chapter 3, once again, we have this amazing reversal where God will come in with His mercy and grace and bestow His blessings on them. Hosea 3.5, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. So there will be this protracted period of purging where Israel is left without the appointed Levitical worship, um, but also without the practice of idolatry. So there's, the, there's this extended time when they will have lost their king or their prince, uh, they have neither the true worship nor the worship of idols, and they're unable to present a sacrifice because they have no temple and no more priesthood. Uh, I'll quote this again. This was from a commentary. This is Charles Feinberg in his Hosea commentary. He says, quote, Just as Gomer was placed in the position where she no longer consorted with her former paramours and yet was not in full fellowship in marriage, a truly strange condition... So Israel is throughout this age in a position where she is neither idolatrous nor enjoying the fellowship of God uh, is, is worship pleasing to Him. So they have, they're in this sort of strange place where they're, they're, they're not really enjoying that fellowship with the Lord and able to worship. They're, they're, in, this, um, they're in this time of what Paul refers to in, in Romans uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 where uh, there's been a, a partial hardening of Israel, and yet we don't really see that idol worship prevalent in the life of Israel uh, in, in our day. We, we don't see that in you know, anything like what they were doing during the days of, of Hosea and some of the other, uh, the time of some of those other minor prophets. So in this present age, since the death of Israel's Messiah, who came as king of the Jews, Israel has known neither king nor prince. There is no temple, for the land on which the temple is is not theirs. There is no atonement because there is no blood of, of sacrifice in the religious ceremonies. Yet even without a religious center and ritual, she has not turned again to idolatry. And that's what, you know, this is the sort of the fascinating thing about Israel's history. And even, even unbelieving secular Historians marvel at the fact that Israel even 
remains or abides to this day. I mean, their, their very existence is really, really a marvel. So that's not the end. Um, there is a tomorrow for Israel. There is a coming day when God will take the initiative and Israel will do that turning. They will have a proper fear of God. If you want to look over it to Jeremiah 32, again, these are, these are one of those new covenant uh, passages. And there are actually, we've gone, as we've gone through Hosea, we've pointed to these times when speaks of God calling them back to the land and they come in this sort of trembling way with a proper fear of God. But, but Jeremiah 32 speaks of this time. Uh, Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 36, says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. Notice what he says. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all of this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. We have not seen that, right? We have seen a return of some, um, really a minority that returned after the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities, but certainly not on a national scale, God putting his, the fear of him in their hearts, um, so there, th- these, are, these are things that have been uh, fulfilled in some ways, but not, not completely. There will be this time when they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days, and God's love for them will not only cause them to fear, but others to fear. Again, this is something that hasn't happened. Jeremiah 33, if you want to turn maybe a page in your Bible, Jeremiah 33 verse 9 says, it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. So there's not just the fear of the Lord in the hearts of of Israel, but there's also this, this fear and trembling that takes place among the nations as they see and observe the way God is dealing with his people again. We haven't seen that. No, nobody is is in, is is coming with fear in their hearts, a, a, a godly fear because of the way that the Lord is fulfilling his his covenant with his people. So the nation of Israel will return. She will seek. She will come. She will return to the true God. She will not need to be sought, but through God's grace, she will seek Yahweh, and she will come with fear mingled with joy unto blessing and salvation. How? How does she do that? Because Yahweh's love for her outlives her love for Him. Right? So again, this is a love that is, we've seen throughout the book is not, it's not reciprocated, it's not being returned, and yet God continues to show that, and ultimately that is what is going to prevail. God's love and grace is going to prevail, and God's going to do this work in the heart and life of Israel so that they do come with love for God. They do come with a fear and proper reverence for God. So, the, so these first three chapters of Hosea are illustrative and the names are very pointed. And then we get to chapter 4 and this is, there's not now, beginning in chapter 4, there's not this intermediate Hosea and Gomer, but this is very direct from the Lord himself. Okay, so we get to chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness, nor kindness, nor knowledge of God in the land. Okay, so this begins that second 
part of the book where the Lord is now directly, the illustrative part is now behind us as far as what's going on in Hosea's personal life. These are, these are direct charges brought against the nation of Israel, and this is the summary of what is to come. Uh, this in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, basically, and these are all sins of omission, right? These are things that are, are lacking in, in, in their lives. There is no faithfulness, or it's the, really the word for truth. So there's no truth. It's actually a, a term that's only mentioned here, here in Hosea. So no truth, and then we'll see later on in the book these evidences of deception, right? So there's no truth. There is no kindness. Now, this is, this is the term in the Old Testament for loving kindness, or it's that Hebrew term for God's loyal love. And so he's saying there is no loyal love on the part of the people for God, or you might even translate it as there's no loyalty to God in that relationship. So there's no truth. There's no loyalty on the part of Israel. And there is, thirdly, no knowledge of God in the land. There is a a lack of knowledge, or you might say a lack of of true understanding of God among the people. Uh, Or you might even say this, because it could be they just don't, they don't understand who God is, but more likely they don't live in light of who God is. So rather than say there's no knowledge of God, it may be better to think of it as they don't acknowledge God, right? Because they certainly have God's revelation, right? So God has, has revealed himself to them, but they're not living in light of that. There's no recognition on their part of God's attributes or God's will. So these are the offenses, right? This is the summary of what's about to come because what, what, what's going to happen next is God's going to lay out all the evidences of this. So he said, this is the initial charge. The charge is there's no truth, there's no loyalty, there's no recognition on the part of the people of who I am and my will for their life. Okay? Again, as soon as we hear that, we ought to be struck with, that's us, right? In other words, this book is not mainly about us identifying with Hosea as to how we should show mercy to other people that are treating us like Gomer, right? But that's where a lot of people go with this book. They think of it on a very horizontal plane as to how we are to treat others. We ought to be identifying not so much with Hosea, but we ought to be identifying more with Gomer, right? That the Lord could look at us as his children and say of us that we lack truth, that we lack loyalty to him and our relationship with him and walk with him, or that we are not living our daily lives in light of his attributes and his, his will and his promises, Right? So we ought to be identifying with that through this whole book. As these charges come, we ought to be thinking about, that's me. That's me. It's like some days, that's my life, right? I'm not living my daily life in light of God's character, right? I am not speaking truth. I'm not speaking truth to myself. I'm not speaking truth in my own heart. I'm not speaking truth sometimes to others. So there is this, there is this horizontal impact that that has on our relationships with other people, but it's primarily an offense against the Lord, right? If we're not speaking truth in our hearts and we're not speaking truth in relation to our, our position and standing with God, then certainly that's going to impact our truthfulness, right, in the way that we relate to others. And then living without knowledge of God or, or not acknowledging Him. All those evidences of omissions. And then verse 2 focuses on the commission side of this. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery, they employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then from that point on, we saw the Lord cast in different roles as, we said, as a prosecuting attorney, presenting evidences against the people and their leaders, as judge and jury, sentencing the people. So he's not only the one who's bringing the charges and the evidence, he's also the one that's hearing, <laughs> in a sense, presenting it and both hearing it and then evaluating and assessing those things sentencing the people. He's also the parole board uh, that at times as Israel seems to be repentant, God is the one who is assessing the sincerity of that, the sincerity of the repentance and, and the sincerity of their trust, but really seeing through those shallow commitments on the part of Israel. And then as executioner, ordering punishments to be carried out. 
and really touching on every aspect of Israel's life, whether it's it was militarily breaking them down, agriculturally there were impacts on, on, the, on the land, on their agricultural uh, sort of uh, prosperity, uh, poli- their political prosperity, certainly their, their religious life and all of that. God brings judgments against all those arenas of their life. And then in chapter 11, we see him cast as the lover of his people and the one who will not give up on his guilty and criminal people. So from chapter 4, verse 1, really to chapter 11, except for one verse that's sometimes even disputed if it's, a, if it's a positive thing or a negative thing. But from chapter 4, verse 1, until we get to chapter 11, it's just one long, dark message because it is evidence after evidence. It's, it's exhibit A, it's exhibit B, it's exhibit C, it's exhibit D, where the Lord is just outlining all of the things that Israel is guilty of to the point where you're like, is there any good news? <laughs> what happened to the early part of the book where there was a little bad news and a little good news and then more bad news but more good news and this back and forth, where's the good news? And we really hit that good news in chapter 11 and then we'll see it again today in chapter 14 that reminds us that there is hope and that this theme of hope and restoration really runs beginning in chapter 11 through the end end of the book. So this hope of the future carries on, though it is shackled by sin in the past and the present. Uh, It is a hope that is kept alive mainly because of the Lord's faithfulness. And it is, as we've seen, a hope that cannot be built on the people's initiative because they would never take it. If this thing was hinging, if this hope of restoration was, was hinging on the people, it would never happen. And so what God will do is God, again, He will cause them to turn so that they can return. And we saw other passages in the Old Testament where the the Lord speaks of it in this way. It's not as if Israel on their own initiative is going to repent. God in His timing, which is perfect, is going to turn Israel so that Israel is able to return to the Lord. So this is all based upon God's initiative. It's all based upon His, His character, His word, His calling, which is irrevocable. And so getting into our chapter for today, this, this hope is offered in connection with genuine repentance, uh, not that surface and false repentance that we've seen exemplified by Israel uh, up to this point. Uh, there's, it involves genuine repentance there is this call and this, this, this awakening to biblical wisdom, which we'll see at the end of the very last couple verses of chapter 14. And then in the middle, there is this, and this is really the main goal, I think, of chapter 14, is this guaranteed restoration of God in verses 4 to 7. And so you th- if you think of chapter 14, this last chapter in this way, there are two necessary responsibilities on the part of the people One is genuine repentance. The other is a genuine response to biblical wisdom. And then sandwiched in between those two necessary responsibilities is this promise of God's restoring them based upon His His sovereign mercy alone. So, all right, we got, all right, here we go. Let me give you just these, there are three sort of, there's an outline. There's a hope of restoration which is offered in connection with genuine repentance. This begins here in, in verse 1. A return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So this is the prophetic call that we've seen in Hosea. It is also the common call of all of the prophets, whether to the northern or to the southern kingdom. It is this Hebrew word, uh, again, shuv, which means to to turn, right? So we've said this, this word, to turn, is sometimes translated as return. It kind of depends on where the people are <laughs> right at the time. So if, they're, if they've turned away, then obviously to turn to the Lord is to return to the Lord. And so you'll see it translated in, in that way in some passages, and that's the way it's translated here uh, in the New American Standard. So we find this to be the, the primary focus of the prophets to all who were disobedient. You see this over in 2 Kings chapter 17. Verse 13 there says, Yet 
the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. And so in this passage, basically he's saying this was the warning that came, and he mentions the seers, which probably are those prophets that there's a, uh, there's a, a visual element to those who receive a vision from the Lord. But whether prophets or seers, sort of categorically, he says, this is what they did. What the prophets did was they called people to return. That was the main, their main message, was to call the people back to a life of faithfulness to God's commands in statutes. Now this has with it a sort of a, um, uh, when it says return to the, to the Lord, this, has, this is a preposition of goal. Um, so it, it actually can be translated as return until the Lord. So it's this idea of, of coming uh, as far as uh, to the Lord, or if you, you maybe contrast it this way. Most of the time, there, it's a preposition of direction. So most of the time when you find this return to the Lord, it's, it's like a sign saying return to the Lord, right? So it's a directional preposition. But in this case, it's a preposition of goal, and it's, it's this idea that you need, to, you need to turn or return all the way back to the Lord. So it has, it's the emphasis is, is the goal of where you're going. And so it's not just, hey, go back to the Lord. It's come back all the way to the, to, the, to the intended goal. Or you could paraphrase it this way. Come all the way home, right? Don't come halfway to the Lord. Come all the way to the Lord. Return all the way to Him, not halfway and then turn around. Now, why is this so necessary? Well, the second line of verse 1, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity, right? So there's this stumbling that has taken place. It's actually this term for iniquity is a, is a term for being twisted. So it's a, it speaks of moral perversity or ethical twistedness. There's been this, this twisted and morally perverse life that the people have been living. And for that reason, uh, they need to return all the way to the Lord. And now, interestingly, Hosea sort of tutors them in how to go about that repentance in verses 2 and 3. He says, take words with you, verse 2, and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away our iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Literally, take with you words and return to Yahweh. Say to him, forgive all iniquity, and accept good or, or receive good, and or then we will offer or present bulls of our lips, or our lips as bulls. In fact, this is the way the ESV, most of you, I think, have that translation. It says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls, the vows of our lips. And this reception of good from the Lord is probably based on instructions that we find, for example, in passages such as Deuteronomy 6.18 that says, You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers. So say to him, Forgive all iniquity, accept what is good, which would be the expression of true repentance, again, not that shallow repentance that we've seen on their part so far, then we will offer further expressions of gratitude by offering bulls of praise. Okay, so that's, that's, a, that's basically what he's saying. And this, this is, is the illusion that is picked up, I think, in Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews 13, 15, or speaking of Christ, there it says, Through Him, or through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God 
is pleased. That is to say, the Lord wants the genuine change and the praise that comes from that, not so, not so much what you see, right? So it's just this idea that they would come back with a heart of true repentance that God would find acceptable, right? Not the fake stuff, not the shallow stuff, but they would have a heart of true repentance which would then lead to expressions of praise. That's what the Lord wants, folks. He wants heartfelt repentance, heartfelt trust that then makes its way out, right? Of our, it comes out of our lips. But what's coming from our lips is not disconnected from our heart, right? Because what did Jesus say? Your lips are, far, your lips are near, but your hearts are far from me, right? So what he wants is hearts that are, have come all the way back to the Lord that then naturally is expressed in their lips, right? Praise. That's what he wants. Now, it's not as if God didn't institute the sacrificial system, right? He's not saying, oh, don't worry about all the sacrifices. I mean, that was an important part of the life of Israel. He's just saying that at this point in their history, the sacrifices were essentially meaningless because they were mingling the, the worship of God in with the worship of idols and the Baals, right? And so he's just saying, that's not what I want. I don't want you to just go through the motions of fulfilling the sacrificial Levitical system with no heart of repentance and no lips, no praise on your lips. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system is so that you would humble yourself before God, come to Him by His design, in His way, with humility and a contrite heart and all the right heart attitudes, and those attitudes would make them their, their way out of your mouth. Right? That was the intent all along. So that's what, that, that is what the Lord wants. Genuine conversion, genuine repentance, and genuine praise that comes from a heart that is not duplicitous, from a heart that is not divided, right? He wants them to come with a whole heart, an undivided heart. So these constituent parts, genuine confession, followed by God's acceptance, then followed by grateful praise. These are the things that make up a true turning to God. And that is, again, that is not what we've seen, right? That is not what we've seen uh, on the part of, of the nation of Israel. Furthermore, a true expression of repentance would require an absolute rejection of all that the nation had trusted in outside of God alone. Right, so this is the other side of repentance because when you when you come to the Lord, you leave some things behind. Right, so it's like in Thessalonians when Shane was preaching in Thessalonians or in chapter one, it talked about those who had turned to the living God from idols. Right, so if you're going to turn to the Lord, you're going to leave some things behind, and this is sort of what verse three is all about. He says there, Assyria will not save us. So this is their, them saying these words. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. So this was their track record, relying in what they thought they could control, relying in their alliances with other nations, relying on their own military prowess and power, trusting in the work of their own hands, their false gods, their idols. But they must finally heed the warning of Isaiah 31.1. This is a passage we've looked at, I think, at least twice. But it says there, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together." And according to Hosea chapter 14, verse 1, 
this is exactly what happened. They stumbled. So the prophets came. This is what they told them. If you trust and rely on other nations, if you trust and rely on your own wisdom, if you trust and rely on your own strength and your own riches, you are going to stumble. You are going to stumble. And yet they did not heed that warning. And in fact, they did just that. They, they stumbled. Now, attitudinally, Israel, Israel would also need to understand the truth of passages such as Proverbs 3.34 that says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted, or to those, it's translated, those who are bowed down. So this, this is the attitude that we must and will, that, that must and will undergird everything else, right? Where pride has been dealt with, pride has been eradicated, and we understand that this, this reality that the road to reconciliation is a road that departs from pride and moves to and through humiliation. Right? So th- this is what is exemplified in that final line there of Hosea 14.3, For in you the orphan or the fatherless finds mercy. So if they would truly do this, this is the thing, if they would truly do this, truly repent, if they would truly confess, if they would truly come with a heart of brokenness and humility, then the open arms of the Father are ready and willing to greet them. And again, remember Hosea's second child, lo ruhamat, no mercy, right? But yet they will find mercy. And God is a God of mercy who will show them compassion if they will come with a broken heart. So he's just saying, God's, God's about to give us, and beginning the, here in verse 4, this promise of, of restoration, but it's not disconnected from this attitude of true repentance, right? Again, we know, we know theologically God is going to do this work, right? He is going to do this work in them, and yet He is not going to do this work of restoration apart from their repentance, so he's not going to restore an unrepentant people, right? He is going to turn them. They are going to turn to him directionally, and they're going to come all the way home, right? They're going to come all the way back to him in full fellowship with these admissions in their life, with this understanding that God is holy God is powerful, God is sovereign, God is just, and God is also compassionate, and He's also loving, and He's gracious, and He's merciful. And they're going to truly understand and know the Lord, right? That, in other words, they're going to acknowledge God in every way for who He is. They're going to live in light of God's will and His attributes and His character. And when they do this turning, when they do this returning to the Lord, and they come with those attitudes, they will find that God has compassion. Because the Scriptures say over and over and over again, God gives grace to who? The humble. So their humility and repentance and brokenness is going to be in concert with this time of restoration, which leads us into this Next point, verses 4 to 7, the hope of restoration that arises from the Lord's mercy, from God's mercy. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy or defection. I will will love them freely, or you could say voluntarily, for my anger has turned away from them. That is to say, I am going to love them with no strings attached. And we saw this unearthed back in Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. We have it again here. This is a, a spiritual healing such as we find in Jeremiah 3.22 that says, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. So again, they have not been loyal to God. They've been disloyal. They've been unfaithful. They've been spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, and yet God is going to heal that disloyalty. He's going to heal that unfaithfulness. It says, Behold, Jeremiah 3.22, 
Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And so again, they will come to the Lord and they'll be acknowledging the fact that the Lord is God. And that is what God is is expecting as a response. So the Lord will reaffirm His love for them. And again, don't forget about how this thing started, right? This don't forget about that original initiation of that kind of love in passages, passages like Deuteronomy 7. Right? Again, a passage that we went to multiple times where it simply just teaches us that God, God loved them because He loved them. Right? He did not choose them, not choose the nation of Israel because they were greatest, because they were the most powerful or all that. He says He set His love on them and He chose them because the Lord loved them and kept the oath to them. So again, it sounds sort of circular to say the Lord loves them. The Lord loved them because He loved them, but that's basically what the text teaches, right? And that, that is the kind of love that God has had for Israel from the outset. And so God will do this freely, or you might say it this way, God isn't for hire, right? He loves freely, and this is the irony, because they were hiring lovers, Right? So if you, if you notice, but this is back, we hit this in chapter 8, verse 9. There's actually a, a statement there, very direct. Ephraim has hired lovers. That's what she's done. Ephraim has hired lovers. We see the same imagery applied to Judah in Ezekiel 16 that says, You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction from your, for your har- harlotries. Thus, you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus, you are different. As we said, this is the irony of what you're doing is that you're not being paid for that harlotry, that adulterous behavior. You're an adulterous who is paying your lovers to do what you do. And in that, he says, you're different. (laughs) You're you're not even like the average harlot because you're paying out to do this thing. You're the one who is buying and bribing lovers. And yet, in contrast to that, what Hosea is saying here in chapter 14 is that God loves with no strings attached. He cannot be bought. He freely loves, and He exemplifies a kind of self-sacrificial love that only He can give. So God will heal their apostasy, and He will love them freely. And what makes this possible is the appeasement of His wrath, which is what is stated at the end of verse 4. Right? Since, since this guaranteed divine response pertains to the future, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates verse 4 this way. I will heal their apostasy, I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from them, or from him. So this is something that is predicted upon their repentance and their resolve. God will do that in the future. So it's something that is guaranteed but not yet fulfilled in in time, space, and history. When we get to verse 5, again, some of these agrarian images return. We get a preview of some of the future blessings that God will shower upon His repentant people in that day. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. Uh, so again, this is not in the sense of uh, this, comp- this comparison that was used back in Hosea 6.4 as something that would quickly evaporate. If you remember, they talked about their loyalty there and how their loyalty was like the morning dew. It was kind of there and then it was gone. It's not used in that sense, but it's sent in the sense of, say, Proverbs 19.12, which says, The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. So the Lord is saying, essentially in Hosea 14.5, I will be all that you need. I will, I will be Israel's refreshment and satisfaction that will not dissipate. And just a sampling here of the Lord's the consequences of the Lord's grace, says He will blossom like the lily, and He, the whole, the whole nation, I'm going to think of this as the, the whole nation of forgiven people, He will take root, or literally strike His roots like the cedars of Lebanon. So Israel will blossom, 
and he will tap into those water sources from God himself. He will flourish, he will be fruitful. In this this uh this uh, this picture of Lebanon which was well known for its resources and that's really the main emphasis of uh those occurrences where we find Lebanon in the Old Testament. It's this idea of of this uh, abundant and, and the beauty of this resource reservoir in, in the nation of Israel. Verse 6, His shoots will sprout and His beauty or splendor will be like the olive tree and His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Again, a picture of God's abundant blessing. Mentions here the, the olive tree, which was very crucial to the life of Israel, not only for its fruit, for food, but also you, you think about the presses and the using of the oil for, for things like anointing or medicinal purposes or even cooking or using it as oil for their lamps, all of those things. Verse 7, those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So there's, there's some challenges here. You can see this if you have look at various translations, the first part of this verse. Uh, there's some di- discrepancies in how this is translated, but uh, I think the one that is, uh, I think is, is likely the best of these is actually, it is the Holman Christian Standard. It says this, The people will return and live beneath His shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So the sense is this, They will return dwelling in His, this isn't the Lord, this is speaking, I think, of Israel. They will return dwelling in Israel's shade. That is to say, all the returning inhabitants will dwell safely in this divinely restored nation and in, and in such a protected state of existence. And then the, notice the last line, His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So this, this is the Lord's response. That after repentance and restoration, his people will experience an exalted reputation. That this sinful and rebellious people that come in final repentance will become an exalted nation. Uh, You might even say the nation among nations. Israel as a nation will bloom again. That then leads us to these last two verses and the hope of restoration that is attended by an awakening to biblical wisdom. Verse 8. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Right again, this is Ephraim's track record. Chapter 4, verse 17, it says Ephraim is joined to idols. Essentially, they were glued to their idols. But the Lord reminds them, what have I ever had to do with idols? <laughs> it's like he's taking them all the way back to the beginning and saying, listen, from the very beginning, I, I, I told you this at the very beginning, you're to have no other gods, right, before or besides me. So he reminds them of this, that he is the only true God and reminds them that he is the only unique one that responds and cares for them. He says here, it is I who answer and look after you I am like a luxuriant cypress, from me comes your fruit. So again, this exclusivity of God and God alone. He is the one who cares. He is the one who answers. He is the one that, who gives them productivity. That message has never changed. Uh, without God, you can do nothing, right? I mean, Jesus spoke about this in John 15, right? You, 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 you must have the Lord. Without Him, you cannot accomplish anything. With all of that in mind... The whole prophecy of Hosea lands with this call to wise up in verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. So basically a call to wise up, to listen up, to process these things, and to act wisely because you have been acting foolishly. And the only appropriate response and responses to God's promises and warnings are based on this core reality. The ways of the Lord are right. They are smooth. They are level. They are perfect. All of the Lord's operations are are perfect. All of His judgments, all of His assessments are perfect. And there are only two responses to to the being of God and the acts of God, and they are identified in these final two lines 
two contrasting responses. The righteous will walk in them. The unrighteous will stumble in them. So again, two sort of categories of humanity that exist even to this day. Right? There are those who walk in the ways of the Lord, who acknowledge Him, and there are those who reject Him and those who do not trust in Him and they will surely stumble. In fact, you could go, we don't have time, but over in 1 Peter chapter 2, there's that really those first 10 verses there it just, again, just lay out the, that, that reality that there are these two groups. There are those who receive Messiah, right? Those are, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and live for Him. And then there's, there are those who, that when they are given the gospel and the message of Christ, they stumble, right? There are those who receive it to eternal life, and then there are those who stumble over it, right? Peter basically picks up a lot of these ideas from the Old Testament, but even some of those from Hosea itself, speaking about them being a holy nation, a, God, a people for God's own possession and, and such. So this is the way we need to process the message of Hosea. We need to take in the lessons here and how God addressed obstinate and self-willed Israel, folks, because we at times are obstinate and self-willed. Right? So this isn't a book for us to look back on and say, oh, I can't believe Israel did that. This is, these are for our example. Right? These are so that when we see Israel fall and stumble in these ways, it reminds us of our ten- tendency to do the very same things. So th- this message is there for us. We need to identify with Israel. We need to identify with Gomer and these things. Theologically, concerning the principles of salvation and principles of sanctification, not much has changed. Salvation is by grace through faith and genuine repentance. I mean, that, that has always been the case, right? But concerning sin and salvation, we remember the they, in this book, the nation, the they are the us, right? They are we, okay? They are we. And we today, on this side of the cross, need to heed these warnings. Warnings concerning apostasy, warnings about staying on track, admonitions to be in the vine, and to be fruitful, to not neglect this great salvation. Or as 1 John 5.21 even warns us, to guard ourselves from idols. Because idols are calling to us from every quadrant of life, all the time. Right? Things are calling us every day of our lives to forsake the living God. Right? To go and to build cisterns. Right? And to, and to worship the things that we can control when what we need to do is trust in the Lord in His attributes, in His Word, in His promises. And to know that God's, nothing will separate us, right? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. So all of these messages of warning and judgment, and yet the thing that's really undergirding the entire book of Hosea is this promise of God's unconditional grace and love, His sovereign grace, right, that will bring these things to, to their ultimate uh, culmination. So I hope, we, I hope you got I mean, I, it's one of these books. Every time you get through the end of one of these series, you're like, I wish I could kind of go back and do that. I'm sure Brian thinks about this when he's doing things with the, the, the youth. You get through a teaching series, and then when you get to the end, it's like you wish you could, you have so much more by the time you get to the end of it that you wish you could go back and do almost like do lesson one again. But that's just the struggle of teaching and, and preaching, right? And so we've, we've walked through a lot of detail but again, I hope the big message of this and, and some of those key principles have stuck, stuck with you. Um, again, our plan for the next several months is for, uh, we'll have different, Brian will actually be one of the guys stepping in. Tyler's going to fill in a couple times. Uh, we're going to have various guys coming in and teaching, most of them at least once. So we're not going to have like 12 different guys, but hopefully guys come in and do in two weeks at a time or three weeks at a time, but give, gives them an opportunity to sort of do a little mini, mini series or something like that if they want to, or a two-part, three-part um, uh, form of uh, some sort of subject or teaching. So they'll be doing that. Uh, I'll, be in the, I'll be preaching through, the, through June uh, in Revelation. And again, the plan is that when we get through that preaching series in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and then I come back here in July that we're going to just pick up in Revelation 4 and just go ahead and work through the end of Revelation. So we'll just, that'll be, that was our, my plan initially, would just do that in here. 
So we're just going to sort of, it'll be structured a little bit different, but we'll be covering basically the same, same material. So be praying for those men uh, that will be in here the next uh, number of weeks. Be praying for, for me um, in preparation for that Revelation series. Be praying for Shane, because a lot of this, even you know, part of this was initiated by the fact that Shane needs to devote some time and energy to his dissertation, uh, his PhD studies over the next three months. So pray for those efforts on his part. Uh, I know he would appreciate that. All right, folks, thank you so much for your time.